You know, one of the great things about heaven is going to be is we're going to get to sing a lot. And uh, I was just sitting there thinking the songs that we've sung uh, in this service, and I just was trying to think of some great Muslim songs. <laughs> None came to mind. Then I tried to think of some great transcendental meditation songs, and couldn't come up with any. And then I tried to think of some great Buddhist songs, and the only ones I could think of was the Imperials, O Buddha, uh, which was a mockery of Buddhism. And I mean, even the Mormons have to steal our music so they can have a choir. Hello. Because <laughs> they don't believe the gospel. They had to add another book to say what they believed. And they've added two. And their founder has more authority than Jesus Christ, which means that they're not Christians, by the way. Now, y'all don't look at me like that's the first time you've ever heard that. But you know, the, the great thing is, is God is the originator of music. And he's the originator of harmony. And he is the originator of worship and praise. So if you ever wonder, why does the church have so many great songs? It's because we have a great God who started all of that. And that's what heaven is about. And the angels sing his praises now. When the Christ child was born, the angels appeared and sang glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace, goodwill to men. And there's going to be a day when we will gather around the throne. And we will sing and we will shout and we will praise God. Because God inhabits the praises of his people. And God loves music because he created it. Where there is discord... That is the enemy. And much of the music that creates division and diversion is discord and a misuse of the great gift of music that God has given us. We, the church let the world take music and run with it because somewhere some knucklehead along the way said, you know, music is of the devil. I don't know where that guy got that, but if we can dig him up and talk to him, we need to have a word with him. The church ought to have the greatest music and the greatest musicians and the greatest harmony and the greatest expression of praise of anything because that's birthed in the heart of God. I don't know why I got off on that, but I just, I've loved the songs tonight. The songs have just been great. I want you to take your Bibles and turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 13, and we're in our fourth message in Soldiers of the Cross. And I want us to look tonight for a few moments on, are you a conscientious objector? Are you a conscientious objector? During the Civil War, many people in the North and some in the South paid people to go fight for them. When the draft was initiated, men of wealth and means decided that they could not risk their life on the battlefield and so that they would pay common laborers to go fight for them in the great battles because they figured losing a common person wasn't costly as if they had lost their own life to defend freedom and to protect the unity of the United States. I grew up in the 60s. I uh, 
I remember the conscientious objectors. At the same time of the Jesus movement, there was also a great rebellion going on across this land. It's where we first started seeing things that we never thought we would see, the burning of the flag and people in the name of peace protesting and defaming the very government that allowed them the chance to do that, fleeing over the borders to Canada so that they would not have to go to Vietnam because they did not like or support the war while somebody else's blood was shed on a foreign battlefield so that they wouldn't have to shed theirs. We even elected a president who had that mentality. Draft dodgers burning their draft cards. Presidential candidates who threw their draft cards over the fence at the White House. Not honorable people. I wouldn't call that honorable. I would not call that the kind of people that lead with integrity. Who, when called on to do something that is costly, say, how can I get out of paying that price? And yet, within the church of our Lord and Savior, there are people who are conscientious objectors. They want somebody else to give so they don't have to. They want somebody else to serve so they don't have to. They want someone else to work so they don't have to. And they want someone else to be faithful so they can enjoy living in the wake and in the shadow of faithfulness without being required to be faithful themselves. Now, let's just be honest. It's just us folks here tonight, okay? There are a lot of members of Sherwood Baptist Church that like the music and like the feel and like the energy and like the fellowship, but they have no intention at all to get on the boat and to pay the price. They just don't. And we can fume and fuss about it, and I have fumed and fussed about it. We can do that, or we can just decide that there are some people that are no better than conscientious objectors and their names happen to be on the church roll of Sherwood Baptist Church and every other church of every denomination in this country because they don't want to pay a price. They don't want to take up their cross. They do not want to die daily. They don't want to die to themselves. They don't want to live a separated life. They don't want to live a holy life. They want to get to heaven, but they don't want to have to pay any price to get there. And yet, when I read 2 Timothy, I see such a call for us to be soldiers. One of the things that I've learned pastoring in a town with a Marine base, that's a Marine amen, by the way, in case you didn't know that. One of the things I've learned is how to always be grateful for people who have served. You know, I don't know that I fully understand, uh, understood with my dad and with my father-in-law the price that they paid in World War II to be the greatest generation and in the Korean War. I have friends that never came home from Vietnam. Some of them, their bodies were never found. And so when I think about the church militant, the church triumphant, that requires men and women who have an attitude of service and who are willing to be soldiers uh, I, I love going to Israel because every man and woman without excuse in Israel serves in the military. And I want to tell you something. They know how to be serious about their country. They learn how to be serious about it. 
You remember that little children's song we used to sing, I may never march in the infantry, ride in the cavalry, shoot the artillery, but I'm in the Lord's army? Well, we got denominations now that don't want their children to sing those songs because they sound warlike. In fact, there's one major denomination, I won't name it, but <coughs> Methodist uh, took, <laughs> took, <laughs> took onward Christian soldiers out of their hymn book because they said it was too militant. Onward Christian soldiers marching as to war with the cross of Jesus. Amen. Thank you. Well, listen. Paul used the image of a soldier. He talked about us fighting a battle. And just because it makes us a little uncomfortable to hear that analogy doesn't mean we get to go to the Bible and tear that page out and say, well, that makes us, we don't like that. We just want to be peaceful and loving and kind. Folks, we're in a battle. There are opposing forces trying to knock us off balance. There's an enemy that is engaged in open warfare. God's name and God's word is being blasphemed. The Lord's book, the Lord's house, the Lord's people are being ignored. And the enemy wants us to retreat. But Paul reminds us in this book that our commander-in-chief has not given us the option of retreating. We are to be soldiers of the cross. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel, for which I suffered hardship, even to imprisonment as a criminal. But the word of God is not imprisoned. For this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, so that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus and with it eternal glory. Now, every soldier knows how to take apart and put together a weapon, and he knows how to fire it. Uh, Chris Fuhrer, who is in charge of the Provident film team, uh, she is a graduate of West Point. And in her class as a graduate of West Point, she was 40 of 40 as a sniper of taking the head off of a target. 40 of 40. We always tell people, don't mess with Chris. In fact, she beat every man in her unit. She knows how to take a weapon apart. She knows how to put a weapon together. And she knows how to fire it. And she knows how to shoot to kill. Every good soldier is familiar with his weapon. Now, what's our weapon? The Word of God, the sword of the Spirit. And we know how to use it, not abuse it, not ignore it, not just pick it up when we feel like it, but we know how to use our offensive weapon because we know that we are in a battle that is going to cause us to come in conflict with this world, and our opinions are not going to be able to stand against the onslaught of the philosophies of this world. The only thing that can stand is the Word of God. But sin has made us lazy. And success has made us sloppy. And so in verses 8 through 13, Paul gives us three more metaphors. He's talked about a soldier, an athlete, and a farmer, that if they expect success, they have to have hard work and there has to be some suffering. And the first 
thing that he uses is in verse 8, the experience of Christ himself. Remember Jesus Christ. How can we forget? Well, by nature, we forget. Why did Israel wander in the wilderness? Because they forgot. Why does God tell us to take the Lord's Supper? Because we forget. We, by nature, forget, and so we have to remember. We forget, and when we forget Jesus, here's what happens. We fall into compromise. When Jesus is not preeminent, when we don't remember Jesus, we fall into compromise. We'll fall into legalism, and we'll fall back on just keeping rules and not operating under the Spirit, we'll operate under rules, and typically those rules are always rules we made up for ourselves or somebody made up for us, but not the rule of the Spirit, which is totally different than the rules of legalism. Or we will get ourselves involved in petty theological debates that don't matter a hill of beans, you know, if a tree falls in the forest and nobody's there, does anybody hear it? How many angels can dance on the head of a pen? And you can sit there and debate those things ad nauseum, and the world will still go to hell. And we have people that like to argue and debate about over petty things that don't matter. Because when we get to heaven, we're going to find out we've all been wrong about something. Okay, it may surprise you. It may be shocked. But if you will look at your wife, she will tell you you've been wrong about something before. I mean, we've all been wrong about something. And we can hold a strong conviction. That doesn't mean that we're right about it. We can get real petty about those kind of things. But we need to remember that Christ is the gospel. And Paul says it was entrusted to us. Now look at the two phrases he uses. Risen from the dead speaks of his divinity. When Paul says, remember Christ risen from the dead, he's reminding Timothy, don't you forget, this is not just any man that walked the earth. This is not a teacher. This is not a prophet. This is not a good moral example. This is the living God risen from the dead. And then he says, descendant of David, that speaks of his humanity. So when Paul uses that one little phrase, what he says is he was all God and he was all man. He was a man. He had to die as a man for our sins. He was all God. He rose from the dead. He was a sinless man, but he was also God. And the purpose of this reminder of remembering the experience of Christ himself is simply this. Timothy, when you start thinking about going AWOL, you better remember what Jesus did for you. When you start thinking that it's too costly, it's too hard, people make fun of me, and I don't like people looking at me like I'm weird. When you start thinking that paying the price for serving God is too hard, you remember Christ Jesus and what he did for you. He died for you. But not only the experience of Christ but the experience of Paul in verses 9 and 10. Paul was suffering, and he was imprisoned, and he was chained. But God's Word is not chained. In fact, the Word of God is not imprisoned. When he says that in verses 9 and 10, but the Word of God is not imprisoned, that's a cause and effect statement. Now look at verse 10, if you would. For this reason, I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen. 
Now, let me just stop here and talk about what he's talking about there, okay? Paul is talking about the gospel. Remember what he's been chained for and what he's been imprisoned for. He's been imprisoned for sharing the gospel. Everybody got that? He's in jail because he will not keep his mouth shut about the need for people to come to Jesus. He will not be quiet that the cross demands a decision of every person. He won't stop talking about it. And so they throw him in jail for trying to convert people to Jesus Christ. And then in this verse, he says, for the sake of those, those who are chosen. What Paul is saying here is that election, predestination, that doctrine does not exempt anybody from sharing the gospel at every opportunity. You show me somebody that says my theology says resp the responsibility is all on God and I don't have to do anything to share my faith and I will show you a deviant theology. You cannot believe in Jesus and ignore what he said about sharing the word. The gospel demands a voice. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. How are they going to hear if we're not speaking? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. How shall they hear without a preacher? Go into all the world and share the gospel. Paul was suffering because he had preached the gospel. Paul was not suffering because he was sitting in a seminary class studying a theology that he had created to make himself feel good about not caring whether the world goes to hell or not. Now, this is important because this is a major debate running in the life of this country. Only in America do we have the freedom to debate predestination and election. Because we're so lazy, all we got time to do is sit around and meditate on our theological navels. In a third world country where you get killed for sharing the gospel, they're sharing more than guys that are running out of our seminaries are sharing. Why? Because they believe in the power of the gospel, not in a textbook. And show me a gospel or a doctrine that does not drive you to share your faith, and I will show you a doctrine that you have twisted and distorted. You cannot, you cannot, you cannot believe this book and think you get a pass from sharing the gospel. That's like believing you can be a soldier and you never have to report for duty. Or you can wear the uniform, but you don't have to live up to the expectations of what that uniform is supposed to represent. You can't do it. Paul says in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 12, Now I want you to know, brethren, that the circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. So that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. That most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord, because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Now, Philippians 1, 12 through 14. Let me just tell you what Paul just said to us in Philippians 1, 12 through 14. Paul said, they locked me up for sharing the gospel, and since I'm chained to these guards and they can't go anywhere and I can't go anywhere, I just decided I'd tell them about Jesus because what else are they going to do to me? They've already thrown me in jail. 
He said, in fact, I'm so bold about sharing it with these Praetorian guards. And I'm sure those Praetorian guards weren't sitting there saying, well, bless your heart. I bet some of them slapped him around. I bet some of them hit him, kicked him. When he was about to fall asleep, they'd wake him up and drag him around, put his face down in that sewage that he was sitting in. Paul said, in fact, when people see how bold I am in prison, it gives them courage to share the gospel. Courage to get put in the same situation that I'm in. I heard a guy say one time, say, well, Paul was a Calvinist. No, he wasn't. Paul was a Christian. Calvin wouldn't even be a Calvinist, by the way. Most Calvinists describe Calvinism today. The Calvinism John Calvin wouldn't even recognize today. You see, Spurgeon was a Calvinist. Baptists were born out of a Reformed theology, and Spurgeon was a Calvinist. But he had a 1,000 people saved in his church and baptized every year during his entire ministry. And I can take you to churches that thump their Bibles and can quote you doctrine like the back of their hand and beat me to a pulp in a theological debate, and their baptismal waters hadn't been stirred one time because they're proud of their theology while the world goes to hell. Folks, listen, if that's true, then let's bring all the missionaries home and let God save them. If that's true, let's shut down visitation. If that's true, quit inviting your friends. But if it's not true, and if it's true that God has called us to be soldiers of the cross and carry the gospel, then let's have an evangelical Marshall Plan that rebuilt Europe, and let's have a Marshall Plan that shares the gospel to the known world and takes a corrupt, depraved, deprived world bound for hell and says to that world, there is hope for you in Jesus Christ. Right now, all the training messages of Adrian Rogers are being translated so that the gospel can be shared and pastors can be trained in Pakistan. And you may not know this, but you helped pay for that. In fact, we paid for it. We gave the Adrian Rogers Training Institute the money to train every pastor in Pakistan to preach the gospel. You see, I'm more and more convinced the older I get and the closer heaven is and the more real this world is and its sinfulness and lostness that we in every way, by every means, in every possible moment have to find everything that we can do to tell people that Christ has made a difference in us. We've just got to find a way to do it. Now, do we help people get saved? No, we just present the message. God saves the lost, but God needs messengers. And the soldiers are the messengers of the cross. Paul said, I have realized that because of my personal setback, the gospel is spread. Look, look at what he says, the, the greater progress it has helped to spread for the furtherance of the gospel. The Greek word means to cut away before. It, it is a picture of pioneers cutting through uncharted territories, boldly going where no man has gone before. 3,200 plus people groups in this world that have never, as far as anybody can tell, any missionologist can ever tell, that have never in 2,000 years since the cross have ever had any evangelical witness of any kind. Over 3,000 people groups. By the way, there are 670 people groups in America, in America, 
that less than 2% of that people group have ever heard and responded to the gospel of Jesus Christ. You don't know how serious our forefathers took the gospel? In the 1600s and 1700s and 1800s, history records that missionaries in England sold themselves into slavery so that they could be in the hulls of those boats and share the gospel with slaves being carried to the new world. They believed so much in the gospel that they gave up their personal freedom and sold themselves into slavery to be beaten like a slave, sold like a slave, treated like a slave, mocked like a slave, killed like a slave, so that on that three to four month trip across the ocean, they would have the undivided attention of slaves to try to share and show with them, show them the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's commitment to the gospel. And Paul says, I'm willing to be imprisoned if the gospel can be furthered. And then there's the experience of believers, verse 11. It is a trustworthy statement. For if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. And if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. It is very likely that verse 11, 12, and 13 were part of an early Christian hymn that the church would have been familiar with. But I want you to see these parallels that he gives us. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. Now, we believe as Baptists in eternal security, and I believe the Bible teaches that. But this is what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, if in your life you deny Jesus Christ, you better remember what he said. If you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father who's in heaven. If you deny me before men, I will deny you before my Father which is in heaven. You see, what Paul is saying is one of the evidences that you've been saved is you talk about Jesus. And that's how people know that you're saved because you talk about your heavenly Father and the Christ that saved you. And if you don't talk about him, then to not talk about him is not just silence. To not talk about him is to deny him in this world. And so here's, let me, let me summarize this right here. God is faithful to his promises and his warnings. Paul is warning Timothy and the church and us. If he, we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. It means he's faithful to his warnings. Now, now, here's why this is important. If we say we're Christians, 
and we're not serious about the gospel and about sharing with our lost friends and our lost neighbors and about living the, the life of Christ in this world, if we allow peer pressure or the feelings of others or the rebuke of others or the, the pressures of this world to push against us, Paul is saying God cannot deny himself. If you deny him, he will not deny himself. And what he said of himself is, if you confess me, I'll confess you. If you deny me, I'll deny you. Here's two things God can't do. God cannot act contrary to his nature. God can't act contrary to his nature, and he cannot deny himself. So if he says, you confess, I'll confess. You deny, I'll deny. What he's saying is, Anybody that says they're a Christian and they're ashamed to be a soldier, when they stand before me one day, I will say, depart from me, I never knew you. You say, well, I'm not an extrovert. That's not, that's not in the Bible, whether you're an extrovert or an introvert. That's nowhere. Well, I haven't had an evangelism class. That's not in the Bible. If you've had a life-changing story... There are people in churches that can give you the stats of every baseball player on their favorite team. They can tell you how many passes were completed yesterday. They can tell you how many drop balls, and they can't quote three verses of Scripture. But they think they're going to go to heaven when they die. Can I just tell you something? Not if God is true to his nature. You see, a lot of people think they're going to heaven they're not going to heaven. That's why Billy Graham said one time, 80% of the church in America is lost. You know, our greatest mission field are people that are here on Sunday morning that sit all those seats up there and all these seats over here and all these seats back there in the back and you never, ever see them here for anything else. You realize this is almost 10 years we've been doing Refresh. We've got over 1,200 members of this church that have never been to one service. But boy, when they die, they're going to want us to do a funeral and tell how much they love Jesus and their family. They love Jesus and they love their family. You know, if we preachers were honest, this is what we'd say. This guy never came to church and he's probably in hell today. Sorry, family, that you feel bad about that, but I'm going to tell you the truth so maybe you won't end up there. Now, I know, I just don't have love. <laughs> I just need to be love. I just need to have some love. Listen, folks. If you love somebody and they're about to walk out in front of a moving car, you'd tell them, wouldn't you? Or you'd say, man, I really wish I had the gift of warning them. Ooh. That's nasty. <laughs> Paul says, if we deny him, he'll deny us. But he will not be faithless when it comes to his nature. Maybe that's why Jesus said that there's a narrow road. Because a lot of people that think they're getting there are not going to get there. They've added to or they've taken away or they've ignored but God's going to fulfill all of his promises. It's this very principle that brought Jesus to the cross. Now go back to the word endure. This is what he means by the word endure. The word means 
to stay behind and to not run in a fight. That's a good translation of that word. When Paul says that we are to endure, it means we stay behind. When everybody else packs up and runs, we don't run in a fight. It's a word of tenacity. Peter used it in the context of persecution in 1, Timothy, 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 20. James used it in James 5 verse 11. John used it in the context of persecution in Revelation 12 and verse 17. The word endure is a word that separates contenders from pretenders, men from boys, religious from righteous, trivial from the eternal, and the casual from the committed. I want you to turn, if you would, to 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 4. These verses, I promise you that you'll never hear the prosperity boys preaching out of these verses. 2 Corinthians 6, 4, But in everything commending ourselves as servants of God in much endurance, in afflictions, in hardships, in distresses, in beatings, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in hunger, in purity, in knowledge, in patience, in kindness, in the Holy Spirit, in genuine love, in the word of truth, in the power of God. Now notice right after he talks about love and kindness, he says, by the weapons of righteousness. For the right hand and the left. You could just say, Paul said, I've got a righteous weapon. It's a one-two punch. By glory and dishonor. By evil report and good report. Regarded as deceivers and yet true. As unknown yet well known. As dying yet behold we live. As punished yet not put to death. As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. As poor, yet making many rich. As having nothing, yet possessing all things. Paul says that there are two ways that he found trouble. One, because of his voluntary choice to put himself in positions where he would have opposition. And the other was the result of standing for Christ. But sometimes Paul said, I just put myself in a position and I knew I was going to get in trouble. Listen, Paul was not a dummy. He knew when he said, I'm a Roman citizen, that he delivered him from one situation, but it put him in a whole other situation that would lead to his death. Paul knew exactly what he was doing. And he wanted to get the gospel to Rome. And he said, I'm willing to go to prison and I'm willing to be bound and chained and thrown into a jail so that I might have the opportunity to share the gospel in Rome. Here's what I believe about the Apostle Paul. 
He would have never endured all of that if he didn't believe the gospel was true. Since the Sunday before Easter, there's a church in China that every week they're arresting 30 members. I've told you this before, but I keep up with this church. Last week, they arrested about 35 members. Every week that they arrest 30 to 35 members, more people show up for church the next week than showed up the week before. And somewhere in America tonight, there were people that looked out their window and said, it's raining, we should stay home. Our kids might get wet. We don't have an umbrella. Let's stay here where it's dry and comfortable. And Jesus would say, I never knew you. You see, the reality is we've never had to suffer for the gospel. And when we meet people around this world that have given of themselves for the gospel, it brings great shame to think how easy we've had it and how little we've done with it, with the opportunity that God has given us. I think I told you about our friends Peter and Jetta Vadu. He's a pastor in Aradia, Romania. And I asked him, when I saw him a couple of years ago, I said, Peter, how can I pray for you? And how can I pray for the church in Romania? Now remember, this is a church that was under communist persecution. This is, these, these are people that were imprisoned. They were poisoned. They were beaten. They were shot. They were drug outside of their churches and shot to death on the streets. These are people that have been through living hell. And in 1989, as the wall began to fall and as freedom began to come to Eastern Europe, the Romanian church was liberated. And today, Second Baptist in Aradia runs about 4,000 people. They have a seminary with about 500 students. Phenomenal church. And I was shocked at what Peter said to me. This is 1989. He's lived all his life up until 1989 in communist oppression. And he said, Michael, please pray for us that God will send persecution once again because we have gotten lazy as his people. Pray for us that God will send persecution again I've never met an American that prayed that. No wonder America is more lost today than it was the day you were born. Because we've taken the gospel for granted. And we've assumed because we live in a Christian nation that everybody's heard and everybody knows. And 85% of the people in our three-county area do not go to church anywhere anywhere. The story is told of John Bradford, who was a pastor at St. Paul's in London in the 1500s. He was thrown into prison because his beliefs differed with the state church under the reign of Queen Mary. 
While he was in prison, his church members would come to see him. He was allowed to preach twice a day. And he preached to his members, he preached to the soldiers, he preached to other prisoners, to thieves, and to common criminals. John Bradford was so powerful and such a man of God that his guards would let him out of prison every week on his own with nobody with him to go visit the sick members of his church if he promised to be back at a certain hour. And every time he went to visit, he came back. They chained him, they shackled him, they chained him to a wall, and they locked the door. Given the opportunity to walk away and run and hide, he would go visit sick members, he would pray over them, he would come back, and he would go back into the prison. At one point, he was offered the chance to be free if he would renounce his beliefs, and he refused. Six months later, he was made the same offer that if he would renounce his beliefs and repent and fall in line with the state church and the beliefs of Queen Mary, that he would be released and set free. He again refused. A friend came to him and said, John, you need to do something to stall for time. Why don't you ask for an audience with the queen's learned theologians and debate with them about this theology, and maybe that will keep you out of immediate danger? To which Bradford replied, if I did that, my people would think that I had become to doubt, begun to doubt the doctrine I confess, and I don't doubt it at all. The next day, Bradford was sentenced to death. His wife came to him and told him that he would be burned at the stake. When she did, he fell on his knees and he looked to heaven and he said, Lord God, thank you. I have waited a long time for this. Lord, make me worthy of this. Hoping to keep the crowds from knowing what was going on, the queen had him transferred in the dark of night to another prison. But word got out and a crowd began to gather of supporters and members and the curious. And at 9 a.m., a large contingent of soldiers surrounded Bradford and brought him out. With Bradford on that day was a teenager, a boy of about 15, named John Leaf, who had also, as a 15-year-old, refused to renounce his faith. Both men, when brought out into the courtyard, fell on the ground and prayed for an hour. Bradford got up. He took a piece of the firewood that was going to be used to burn him, and he kissed it. He went to the stake that he would be tied to, and he embraced it, and he kissed it. And then he spoke with a loud voice, England, repent of your sins. Beware of idolatry. Beware of false teachers. See that they do not deceive you. And then he spoke words of forgiveness for the queen, for his persecutors, and asked the crowd that he would be faithful until the end. 
Then he turned his head to the teenage boy, John Leaf, and said, Be of good comfort, my brother, for tonight we will have a merry supper with our Lord. Would you pray with me? As we're about to take these elements, let us please remember that the gospel is not a doctrine to be debated. It is a truth to be proclaimed. We can get into the minutia of doctrinal preferences and opinions. But the bottom line question of the gospel is this. What are we doing with it? Are we faithful in sharing it? Are we faithful in living it? Are we enduring or are we running? Are we standing? Do we have the tenacity, the stickability to be good soldiers of the cross? Are we really soldiers or are we pretenders? We like religion and we like the stuff of the church, but as far as Jesus is concerned, that just gets a little too serious. We like the youth group. We like the activities for our kids. We like the, we like the fact that our kids have kids rock on Sunday night. and It's fun and they enjoy it, but when it comes down to really being the body of Christ out in the world, we have a little difficulty with that. What's the gospel worth to you? What's it worth to you when it comes to people's opinions of you? What's it worth to you when it comes to the pressure that people could put on you for living it? I always admire these guys and gals that are valedictorians of their schools that stand up and proclaim Jesus when they know they're going to get in trouble for doing it. If we're good soldiers, we can't go AWOL when it gets tough. We can't sound retreat when we need to be sounding charge. We can't play it safe when the lives of people are at stake. At the risk of ourselves, we have to stand up, stand up for Jesus ye soldiers of the cross and lift high his royal banner for it must not suffer loss from victory unto victory his army shall he lead until every foe is vanquished and Christ is Lord indeed